0: From the boot of a car to over a billion dollars in sales, Jim Estill is no stranger to growing and selling businesses. Besides his first company, EMJ Data, which he started in university, by the way, Jim has built and sold numerous companies from nothing to hundreds of millions in revenue. He's sat on several boards, including a range of technology companies such as BlackBerry, and has invested in hundreds of startups to keep the entrepreneurial cycle alive. You know, following Jim's story is a little like falling down the rabbit hole. From buying one business and then seeing a need and starting another, he's a never-ending stream of ideas. But what sets Jim apart and makes talking to him truly fascinating is that he brings these ideas to life, building profitable, well-run businesses before exiting. This is Jim Estill. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the
1: show. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure, indeed. Very excited to hear about your story. And, you know, I know you've done a lot, Jim, out there in a lot, a lot of different businesses. And I know we're going to have a little bit of a sh- chat about Shipper B, which is um, one of your most recent transactions. But maybe I could kick over to you, Jim, maybe give you, you know, you could give us a, a little bit of an intro, a bit of background into uh, to who Jim still is and, and how you got to
1: founding Shipper B. Well, sure. It's a long journey because I'm old, you see, but that gives me a lot of experience. <laughs> so. So, I started my first business from the trunk of my car when I was in university. I was an engineer, wanted to design circuit boards, got a better deal if I bought two of them, bought two, sold one, then someone wanted a printer, then someone else wanted something else. And I eventually grew that business to a couple billion dollars in sales. And I had sold it. (laughs) So, sorry, hang on. You can't skip over that so lightly. I mean, well, maybe
0: you can, but I can't. So, you know, so we've gone from the back of our car to a couple of billion with a B
1: in sales. That's right. That's right. It it was an overnight success. Took 25 years. So, yes, yes. (laughs) and, And while I'm doing that. I invested in a number of tech businesses because I was selling technology products. I'd see technology uh, products, and I so I would advise companies and be on their board and mentor them and invest in them. And the most famous one I did was BlackBerry. So uh, I was on the BlackBerry board for thirteen years, since before they were public uh, until twenty ten, and uh, I founded a few other businesses. I split my business once. Um, I had this engineering. Um, design circuit board design company, but I didn't have enough space with my computer distribution, so I split that into another company called Connect Tech, and then that company continued and was profitable, and and that company um, sold recently to a company called Heiko. So that was uh, one path that went in parallel with my original company, which was EMJ, which sold to cynix and uh, I had started one other one, Simply Clean, that sold to Pure Source, that eventually sold to Now Foods, and uh, more recently. And then I sat on the board of this company. I retired. And I sat on the board of Danby Appliances. The CEO resigned. And I said, I can go in and run that. Danby Appliances, we make about 2 million appliances a year. I started running a company. I said, that's what I want to do. I like running a company. I don't want to be retired. And that'll be my next decade gig. And then the ownership group said they wanted me to sell the company. So I said, well, how much for? And they told me. And I bought the company. So that's a transaction that would not be the normal transaction. Um, That's how I ended up owning Danby appliances. And uh, then while running Danby, I see a need for parcel mailboxes because unfortunately in North America, people steal parcels. So the courier services, FedEx and UPS put the parcel on someone's porch, people steal it. So we Designed a product to stop porch pirates, and then I saw the need for the courier business, so we started Shipper B, which is a courier business. See, I, I just, I just have too many ideas to implement. Yeah, I can
0: tell. I can tell. I love the term porch pirates. By the way, I'm so going to steal that going forward. So uh, thank you. Uh, out of interest, and uh, um, you know, and I want to
1: get into Shipper B, but D- Danby, um, wh- when did you buy that? I bought that five years ago after I had run it for about a year. So I was a professional manager and I was pre- prepared to do that for a decade because I just like running a business. And so I bought it five years ago, um, which uh, and then, of course, the pandemic happened. But that was just uh, I just poor planning or whatever you can say. What can I say? It happens, right?
0: A bit, bit hard to predict that one. Did you find business? Um, was there an uptick in business um, for, for Danby because people were staying at home and investing in their you know surrounds?
1: Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic's actually been good for us because we sell freezers and people buy freezers, and we sell fridges. People buy fridges, and people are even buying wine coolers because they're no. It's entertained at home. So it was it was an unintended consequence. Now, when the a pandemic first started. I was nervous. I'd have to lay off all my people. So, and we saw this shortage of ventilators. So we said, "Oh, we'll do a little pivot." So we assembled ten thousand ventilators, medical ventilators, in conjunction with another uh, partner company and a couple of other partners. So, uh, but as it turned out, the appliance business is just fine, and everyone's improving their homes. So it's been uh, it's been good. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, Shipper B, um, t- tell us a little bit about this business. Uh, so Shipper B is um, its basically a courier business that was based on using gig drivers and sort of a Pony Express. So we designed this parcel mailbox. And if you're going to work, you might pick it up at, at the uh, uh, gas station near your house, drop it off at the gas station down the next exit. Someone else picks it up from that gas station, drops it at a, at the home. So it's basically a little Pony Express for parcels um, based on the technology we had delivered to stop the port porch pirates. And it was a gig economy thing. Now that business in the pandemic was hurt really badly because all of our drivers resigned, not all of them, but um, many, many of the drivers were retired people. And they said, oh yeah, we'll make a few bucks. Uh, It'll be a good little side gig. And then all of a sudden they say, wait a minute, there's danger here. And er remember early pandemic. The theory, like people would say, I'm not going to touch the parcel for two hours, right? I'm going to have to spray it with alcohol to make sure it doesn't carry. Because we thought at first it might be transmitted on parcels. So um, we turned over almost all of our drivers. And at the same time, most businesses at that time were not focused on their courier service. They're focused more on oh, batting down the hatches. The, you, know, you couldn't even visit people to make sales calls. Nobody wants to talk to you. Oh, you're just courier service. Don't, don't bother us. We're, we've got... Bigger issues to to deal with, so it hurt Shipper B quite a bit, I would say.
0: Yeah, it was a strange time. I mean, yeah, you know, I think I think everybody would collectively, globally agree it's been a strange year and a half. But you know, this sudden spike in deliveries, though, I mean, there must have been. I, I mean, we're still talking about it, right? Like supply chain issues and and deliveries being delayed and stuff like that. Personally, I know we had a re- couple of regular courier drivers. So I, I was almost offering them a room in my house because I'm like, "You're here so often, <laughs> you all might right. as well just move in." And uh, maybe that has something to do with our shopping habits. But um, but you know, all of a sudden, everything became delivery as well. So did, did did you see did you see a spike in those kind of orders? And then was there that you know was there a bit of pressure there on that supply chain? There was
1: there was pressure because you're growing also at, at the same time, you're growing too fast. So you can't hire people fast enough, onboard them fast enough. And ours was an app based, you know, technology based. So it was causing our own logistics issues. So we but we were, when we started the business, I, it was always built to sell because I had Danby Appliances, which is my main business. I was not intending this to be, you know, the next uh I wasn't going to take it forever. So we're building it to sell and we needed a big brother and so that's what we did is we uh, sold the business.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And and so what was the model? Like you were you was it B2B
1: was it B2C? How did that all kind of work? So we were 90, we were all B2C. So it's B2C and some B2B. So it's basically, uh, you know, pick up at the uh, clothing distribution center and deliver to the uh, home. So it was all all B2B business. Okay. So the, the businesses were your clients. That's correct. And the end
0: users were just often it was uh, retail products going to consumers' homes and stuff like that.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. And no, I was just trying to clarify that. My, my thinking is who, who the, uh, ha- how it actually worked. So, um, so that's fascinating. And so uh, how many, um, t- can you talk a little bit about how the tech worked? I mean, I'm, I, I guess we're all familiar with Uber these days and, you know, I've got an app and I want to go from A to
1: B. Is, is it like that or? Uh, It it was sort of like that. The driver would log in and say, I am going to this location. And then we had these hives is what we called them, the basically the parcel transfer mailboxes. And it would say, great, stop at this parcel transfer mailbox, pick up 10 of these parcels. And they were all had a barcode, you just scan them with your your phone, and it would say, it would go green if it's the right one, red if it's not, and it We had a load sensor, so it would weigh the parcels and say, great, you took your 10 parcels and then drop them at the next hive. So we had two types of drivers. One we call commuter drivers, which use the power of while. What can you do while you're driving anyways? Well, you can take a few parcels in the back seat um, and just take them to the next exit. The power of while or the commuter drivers, their big thing is they don't want to spend extra time. They don't want to drive into the city or into the subdivision and find someone's residential And then the other type of driver was more like an Uber driver, go pick up 20 parcels at this transfer point and then deliver them into the neighborhoods and drop off one at a time. So those were the two types of drivers. And some drivers would drive both because they say, oh, I'm going home, but I may as well make a few extra dollars. So I'll drive till, you know, drive till six o'clock tonight and then have dinner.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And and out of interest, I mean, it sounds relatively simple when you talk about the technology and how that worked but i'm curious as about uh, curious about how, like how long does it take to or how long did it take to develop that kind of tech and i imagine it was probably an ongoing iterative process
1: but um yeah what what did that look like well it's long ongoing iterative and it would have taken um the better part of a two years to i'm going to say get it commercially ready You you start shipping in small amounts in a year but it's not um, insignificant. You're doing all of the routing. You're doing the app for the driver. You're doing a portal for the shipper. Because, see, you also have to tie into the shipper IT system. There's no shipper in the world that wants to you know, manually give you t- – and actually, we didn't even want to pick up 10 parcels. You're, you want to pick up from a business that's going to give you 100 parcels or whatever, right? So um, it, it – it was a chore to develop the technology and developing technology always has its glitches. And, uh, so we had a tech team of about 20 people, I think 20 programmers.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and so, so the, I mean, where did the idea come from? Cause you talked a bit a little bit about Danby before. Was it, was it, did, did the idea come from an existing problem you had or was it just something that you knew, you know, could be disrupted and
1: needed a solution? So my problem is I have too many ideas. So I was sitting in a factory saying, what can Dan be making a factory? I said, well, well, we're not a company that just makes appliances. We're a company that makes big boxes. So what's a big box? Well, I'm reading about Porch Pirates and say, oh, we'll make a parcel mailbox that sends you an email or a text when you get a parcel and and uh, um, and and someone can't steal it. It, it has a, like a car alarm. Someone tries to tilt it or break into it and that kind of thing with a camera. So you can look and see who's there and a keypad. So you could give someone a keypad to, to put something in. Um, and so, in, in developing that product, we did a lot of research on the on well, tell, you know, how many parcels are delivered and how are they delivered and what's the whole thing. So we learned a lot about the courier network. That's what inspired the idea. And the interesting thing is these transfer mailboxes, which we call hives, are essentially the same, very substantially similar technology to what you have on your front porch. The difference is it has ten doors, not one door, and it's you know, uh, two meters by uh, one meter by one meter. It's or you know, a little bit bigger than that. It's it's a, a fairly big locker that you would never have on your front porch, but it works perfectly in a gas station because they've got the space and uh, and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. And, um, and so you, you mentioned that you started this company and you were building it to sell. Were, were you the sole shareholder? Did you have any partners in the mix?
1: So we did uh, uh, raise money. And so there was partners. So we sold uh, almost half the company to uh, outside shareholders. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so, and, and is that part of the pitch, I guess, when you're building a company like this, that you're talking to them and saying, well, listen, we're raising capital and this is what we want to do with it, but, but here's where we're going
1: and what the, 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 the exit ramp looks like. Uh, Yes. Except at the same time, you have to be a little soft sell on that because you have to make the assumption you will own the company forever. So, um, yes, that's the real story, but let's make the assumption you're going to hold it forever and build the company as if you're going to hold it forever, because that's what you want to do. And we might have held it even longer. The pandemic didn't come along and take almost a year's runway out of the expenses because of the drivers turning over and uh, essentially customers being reluctant to put much focus on couriers. Even the gas stations didn't want um didn't want as much. See, pre-pandemic, if you go to a gas station and say, we will bring more traffic to your gas station, they said, great. All of a sudden, pandemic hits, They're, everyone's in lockdown mode, and they 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 don't want to think outside the box. Oh, more traffic. We don't want more traffic. You're going to bring COVID. How are these drivers going to be tested? You know, what's the danger here?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a mind shift, wasn't it? I mean, it's um, pro- problems we never imagined we were going to have, so- in terms of the business i mean obviously there's a challenge there in covid i mean was was the business profitable by the time you sold it was it you know was it still in that kind of growth
1: mode or no it was still in growth mode so it was not it was not yet profitable it was in in growth mode and it needed the it needed the big brother for sure yeah yeah okay and so is that what that is that what drove the the actual sale then
0: is to find that big brother
1: i would say yes it was
0: Definitely. yeah 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 So what what, I mean, what does that look like that process? I mean, you're you're a growing company. You clearly have got an idea that you know is working. You've got enough market evidence and proof, so that you know you no doubt you feel confident about the business. But um, so you know you look at cash flow, all this stuff. But what does that process look like to say, okay, well we need a big brother. You know,
1: how did you define who that should be? Well, we first started looking within the courier business, so we went to other couriers to see if they were interested, and then. The company that ultimately bought it had just made an announcement they're they're going into the courier business. So we um, ended up exiting to a company that wasn't a traditional courier um, and was just getting into the business. And that actually works out great because they didn't yet really have the whole thing built. The problem with traditional couriers, they already had their whole networks. and, And so what we were doing doesn't necessarily give them what they want, right? Interesting. So who was the eventual acquirer? Uh, it was a Torstar, which is Toronto Star, which is a national newspaper in Canada. And why would Torstar be interested in getting into the courier business? They actually have a thousand gig economy drivers delivering newspapers. They have trucks that distribute these newspapers miles. I don't know that they drive to your uh, home of in Sudbury, but they drive a long ways with papers one way and come back empty. So it really makes sense on loading on what they have and it's good for their paper delivery people who can get more money. So it really was synergistic. And they were just a fledgling, fledgling uh, in the courier business. So Shipperbee was small and then Torstar takes it and takes it to the next level. So it was very synergistic for them. They also wanted the customer. So we had acquired a few customers by then.
0: Yeah, nice, nice. Um, and can I ask, what, what were typical customers of Shipperbee like? I mean, were they, were
1: they retailers as well or is that Most of them are retailers that sell e-com products, but some of them were just online uh, e-tailers, you know, the hundreds of places. A lot of them were selling on, uh, you know, Amazon Marketplace and stuff like that. So they're, you know, small companies.
0: Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And and so what does – can you talk us through what the sale process looked like? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how long did it take? Who was involved? What were some of the –
1: Sort of, sort of, some of the challenges you've got to deal with going through that process. So it it took about 120 days, start to finish, and uh, basically we went out to the couriers. We went out to a few people, and but we only ended up with uh, a few people who signed an NDA or indicated a real interest. And then early on in the process, one of those dropped out, and then uh, pretty soon we had a couple of horses that were in the race. Um, which I liked because it gives you a little bit of tension in the buyer, if you only have one buyer you're kind of negotiating with yourself, so we had a little bit of tension in the buyers, and uh that's how we how we did it, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, now that makes sense. I don't want to tread on anything that might be confidential here, but how do you come up with a number? You know, you're in growth mode. I mean, you know, for, I know in my, my experience, there's a lot of what different ways people can value businesses and, you know, for established businesses, this whole multiple of EBITDA and all this sort of stuff tends to be a common approach. But if you're in that kind of growth mode, I'm presuming some of those traditional metrics don't necessarily apply.
1: Uh, absolutely, they, they don't apply. So, Uh, There had been a couple of other companies which had exited. And so we went for things. We basically build the comparables on multiples of sales, multiples of patents. You you build multiples that make you look good. So we looked good on a multiple of patents. We look good on a multiple of sales. We look good on a multiple of parcels. Um, We look good on a growth rate. I mean, uh, you look at a... And if, if I take the growth rate and just extrapolate it for, um, five years. And I'm going to be bigger than, uh, than FedEx (laughs) (laughs) because you're growing from very, so you extrapolate that at the same time. You try to paint a vision for the acquirer where they can imagine what they can do with this. So when we tell to t- sell to Torstar, their geographic area was much larger than ours. They've got underutilized resources. They say, "Oh yeah, this is great. We can utilize a resource which doesn't cost them anything because they already have truck driving there. Um, they already had drop-off points for all their newspapers. So they had a lot of the infrastructure that we that they could use in the courier business already established."
0: Yeah. Nice. So clearly some strategic synergy there where one plus one can equal three,
1: right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And uh, I mean, how much of that stuff do you know going in? I mean, you, you know, I, cause I think in hindsight, you know, you can look back on these deals and go, oh yeah, like there was some great synergy there and that's, you know, the reason this went through. But uh, I mean, in the earlier stages, I mean, I guess other than what you read in the press, I mean, it's can be a bit hard to come across that sort of stuff,
1: can't it? You don't really know. I mean, I learned, um, from other exits to customize the approach. So you'd learn what Torstar wanted and you customize it to what they and and you'd listen to them. So you'd hear like um, one of my earlier parts I'm saying, look, we've got all these patents. we you know, this is what you're going to need. And they they they're deaf to it. They don't care. There's no patents in the newspaper. They don't they don't even care about that. So we actually ended up selling them the company and this the customers and the salespeople and giving them an unlimited license to the technology but we kept the technology. So because ah, they didn't care, okay. they, they didn't care about it but then we cared about it. So that was one creative uh, thing we did. The other creative thing we did with them was uh, we also allowed them to pay part of their purchase price in advertising credits. This is a national newspaper. Danby yeah. is a consumer brand. We sell to consumers. And so that again is win-win. They, they because their advertising it doesn't cost them anything to add another H their newspaper or put it up on the website or whatever, and and yet Danby benefits from that. So that was a unique uh, part of the negotiation. I try to find something that people don't value that we would value, and or or vice versa. So we can give something that they that you know doesn't cost us anything, but the other side values greatly.
0: Yeah, I, that's a massive piece of advice. You know, it's um, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense so I'm curious just about the technology piece, so you've kept the technology and they've got a you know unlimited license to it, but does that not mean now that you're maintaining that software and having to you know is there is there not maintenance and management of all that sort of stuff and having to keep it to a certain standard
1: for them um so no, because we gave them a, a snapshot and unlimited use and we're not going to sue them for patent infringement. So largely what we kept is a patent portfolio and a patent portfolio is not necessarily the code or the code base. And we have actually licensed one other national courier. So we were able to license the patents. And why does the other national courier want to do that? They don't want to get tripped up by some little startup coming in and, and suing them for patent uh, Infringement, but we're not giving them. Um, you know, it, it, we're not maintaining the code because you're you're right. That would be a, a way to keep your losses going <laughs> and whatnot <laughs> forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. And I, I
0: so and help me just understand this because you know this sort of maybe tech and coding for dummies here. But um, so you give them a bit of a you, like the the software as it is today. Right here it is. You have permission to use this. Are, are they allowed to then develop on that and evolve yes. it further? Yes, or?
1: absolutely. They can develop it and, and change it. And they also took some of the tech people, which we wanted them to do because part of what you're trying to do in exit, you're trying to get win-win. So you want your staff to have jobs at the end of the day. So we did deals to ensure that most of the staff were retained. And and actually Danby took a couple, a few of the staff also that they didn't want. So um, it's part of the way we're trying to uh to do it. Because you don't want you don't you don't want to sell the company out from under the people, right? Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Yeah. It's um you know it's funny, I talk to a lot of business owners and we we've obviously helped a lot of business owners exit. And you know, we talk about the different variables. You know, there's the or things that they need to consider. And you know, there's yes, there's the valuation, but there's the timing and how long are you gonna have to hang around after the deal and all this sort of stuff. But but the the one that often i see really wildly different reactions is around this what i'm just going to simply call legacy you know which is you know people often think it's the having the name on the door um whereas i sort of define it as well how do people think and talk about you after you've left the room you know you've done this deal and and you know i think a lot of people don't necessarily dive into that until it's kind of well advanced in a sale process almost but you know, hey, how are these employees going to be treated? And I guess it's a bit hard anyway, early in the piece, right? You can't prejudge how a deal's going to evolve, but it, um, it can be certainly um, one that shake people a little bit halfway through transactions, I find.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things we did is we actually paid an exit bonus to employees or stay bonus to employees to stay with the successor company, which is win-win. Um, and um, it's, you know, so that was one, trick that we did and i've sold enough companies and been with enough companies to, to gone through enough transactions that one of the constituencies i look at are the staff period end of story when, when i sold my first company emj to cynics one of the part of the deal was i would be ceo of the combined entity for three years and i did that because if i'm ceo i'm not gonna go and terminate all of my long-term employees and so i sort of kept that history going before eventually i i left that uh that company, that gig.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. In terms of the sort of stay bonus, was that something that that you actually provided or was it the buyer that provided or a combination? What, what did that look like?
1: Well, I we provided it, but it clearly came out of the proceeds. So uh, I don't know how you want to say it. It really, it could be the call it the buyer's money or my money, but at the end of the day, we put it in place and, and the buyer also wanted that because their fear is that they bought a company and on Monday everybody leaves and it's like no these people aren't going to leave because they're going to stay till uh whatever because they're going to they've got this little pot of money at the end but in reality between you and I whether the buyer pays it or we pay it it's it's all the same pot if you know what i mean yeah
0: oh no look absolutely yeah look it's it's i i've actually had a few clients where i've said to them listen in the back of your mind just keep keep an keep a, an open mind to parking some funds or you know putting some funds out there for people to hang around even if you had to take it out of the sale proceeds out of your own pocket um i've also had deals where the buyers come in particularly when they've been corporate or private equity have said hey that next tier of management we really want to make sure they stay and we're going to offer them some options and some you know give them a nice big carrot to make sure they hang around for a while so i've sort of uh, i've seen it come from either side really i guess it's always just sort of interesting how some of those things get structured so you said it. I think you said it took about 120 days from yeah. beginning to end? That's right. Yeah, interesting. And did you have to hang around at all or was there some sort of, what did that sort of transition and transition period look like?
1: Well, so the, the beauty of this is I was only a part-time CEO there. And everybody knew I was only part-time CEO. I'm busy running Danby Appliances. Everybody knew that. So it actually worked well. Now, as I have bought many companies, acquired many companies, I've learned when I acquire companies not to look at the leaders. Don't look at the generals. Look at the lieutenants. Look at the, the people at second tier because they're used to working for someone. They'll work for me. When I used to look at the generals, they said, oh, yeah, they'll work for me for five years or they'll work for whatever. Well, th- they mentally retire. They retire many entrepreneurs don't hang around. So, uh, I always look one level down is my experience.
0: Yeah, that's a,
1: that's another great tip, you know, for somebody who's been
0: through this process and, um, Jim, you know, I think I see a lot of business owners who don't necessarily think about that exit, right. Until it's, you know, way down the track, even, um, you've successfully built a number of companies to a huge scale and, um, and, and exited plenty too. So, I guess I'm just sort of curious in your thoughts around, you know, when you're building and you're trying to grow these businesses, like what are some of the key elements to, um, you know, do, do you always have that end game in mind
1: and, and how what's the sort of approach to that scale? I mean, of course, at my age, I always try to look at the end game because there's going to be an end game. And I'm going to age out at some point anyways. But at the same time, like I said earlier, I build it as if you're going to run it forever. And at the same time, everything's always for sale. So if someone comes in, on, I don't plan to to sell Danby appliances on Monday. If someone comes in with the right price, then yes, Danby's for sale. But I'm not yet grooming it for sale or anything. I already decided that that's my next decade gig. And so I'm planning on growing it to that. Now, as I approach the end of that decade, I will start doing some things to make it, quote, better for a buyer to sell it. And and simple example would be I'll I'll simplify and get out of some of the, the little side business parts that it does that that, that that aren't that make it an impure business, if you know what I mean. Some of the little yeah things.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Part of the I guess people listening to this podcast will be thinking, you know, when they see your results and you built it out of the boot to, you know, billions in sales and and I think, you know, Danby's of of you know, certainly a very large. Um, I, I believe you, I think you're nine figures or something like that in turnover now. Is that right? Uh, we're about four
1: hundred uh, million. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, massive company. What are some of the, the keys to success to growing a company like that? Though, I mean, you've, you've mentioned you know focus on building value, but but uh, you know holding it for the long term. But are there are there some core things that that go into building a scalable company like that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I believe the larger the company is, the more the leader's job is to coach on culture and let everybody else make decisions. So I even say freely at Danby Appliances, I don't do any work. Everyone else does all the work. So my job is just to keep coach on the culture, get good people, and then let them do their jobs. So I don't micromanage. I just do some coaching from the sidelines. The other thing I often say is we have a culture of failure. So it's fail off and fail fast, fail cheap. And don't zap people for failure. Having a failure does not make us a failure. Not trying is what makes us a failure. So that also, I think, is necessary. Where I see companies that don't grow, it tends to be they don't take any risk. Like they're happy with the status quo. They'll just keep doing what they do. And then maybe the market shrinks a little and whatnot. And I guess the result, some people say, oh, no, high focus, high focus. I have not been high focus. As you can tell, what am I doing starting a courier company when I'm an appliance business. And what am I doing, even, you know, doing a parcel mailbox when I'm an appliance company? Well, it, it just sort of extends when I say it's not just appliance, it's a big boxes. Okay. Then that's how I got around that one. How do I get into doing the courier? I don't know how I, I get into doing the courier, but.
0: <laughs> no, that's cool. And I, I think, you know, culture is something that uh, I think we can all agree is just absolutely critical. I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts here on this. I, I had a guest recently um, on the show, who, um, you know, he was saying how, you know, the, the latest, I, I guess, thinking or you're always hearing people out, out there in the world saying, you know, don't become emotionally attached to your business. You know, don't, you know, it, it's not you and don't be personally vested like that. You've got to treat it just like an asset and it's kind of clinical. And, and he was saying to me, I'm the complete opposite. He goes, you know, I, I, and, and this guy's grown a number of businesses. He goes, I can't help be emotionally invested in the things that I do because in some ways, in fact, I don't think it, I could successfully run anything that I didn't feel passionately kind of engaged in and have some
1: kind of emotional connection. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I'm with him. Basically, I'm highly emotionally connected to all of this stuff for sure. Um, I mean, the other thing is I sold my 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 bigger business and I retired and I learned I don't want to be retired. I'm too young to be retired. It is the being in business that gives me the energy, which probably means high attachment and high emotional thing. Another reason I know I'm emotionally involved is if something uh, happens, then I lose sleep over it. I mean, I I get, you know, I think about it all the time. I, I am passionate about it. That's what helps us be successful, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting one, it, um, you know, especially when I guess family gets involved and, you know, I've certainly seen a lot of businesses where, the, you know, the father started it and now the son and the daughter are running different things and there's always kind of those extra, extra tendrils of potential emotion that kind of overlay it, which, is, uh, which makes for an interesting concoction. So you've been running Danby, what, what's, and you're saying that, you know, that's your gig for the next period. I mean, do you see, I, I know um, you've been involved in listing businesses before, but is is that, um, you know, and is that a potential end game for,
1: for Danby? Uh, I could go public. That could be an exit. Um, I don't like running a public company as much as I did back when I first went public, because I think it was a lot easier then. I think now it's gotten very legalese and it's just not, as, and it's not as easy. I mean, a $400 million company is no longer, um, I wouldn't say that's a, even a big enough company to list. Or I mean, it's, it, it, back when I first listed my company, we were doing $68 million in sales. And they thought, oh, that's big enough to list. If you had a $68 million company today, I kind of say, hey, d- don't get listed yet, right? And not only that, when I was running my, running in the $68 million company, the a public company expenses were probably half a million dollars. Now, I, you can't spend less than a million dollars. It's just expensive to be listed.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It um, and, and welcome your insight here. But I, I've had a few clients say to me they were thinking of listing, and um, certainly were nowhere near as big as Danby is now. And but but put put the size aside. I was suggesting to them that they need to kind of have a look at themselves, their own personality, their own temperament, what they enjoy doing, how they enjoy doing it. Um so at the moment you're you're the king of the castle, <laughs> you know you've got a very easy way to manage and move things around your business when you go public you're going to have a hell of a lot of compliance and you're going to be answerable to a bunch of other people. you know do you want to live in that world <laughs> well well, that's exactly
1: right as soon as you um go public you have you you have to sell to your public investors and of course you have to sell to your customers, you have to sell to your suppliers, so it just gives you one more thing that takes your time the other my other experience is public companies are often short term, and I believe in being long term and long term gives us a lot of power. so I actually like competing with public companies because I'll make a decision that won't yield anything for two years, and I'm fine with that i as long as I make the money, where a public company they've got to make the the numbers for next quarter, and uh I don't have to make the numbers for next quarter unless of course the bank wants to shut me down, but other than that, I'm all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look I like get here. I've
0: I've worked in a number of listed large corporates, both Australian and US based companies. And, you know, to see long term plans that you've been working away on that, you know, obviously impact the division that you run and being overturned or upset for a quarterly result can be Extraordinarily frustrating. I mean, beyond the fact that it undermines your long-term performance, I mean, it's very, very annoying. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that has an impact on culture. Yeah.
1: It, well, it, it totally does. As a matter of fact, in my previous company, I used to track when the quarter ends were of all of my suppliers because they would give us better pricing even though we were going to buy the product anyways. Like you, you just hold your breath. Oh, we're not going to order anything for the next two weeks because we know at the end of the month, we can say, oh, we got this order. You want the order? Okay. You got to give us 2% off or sh- free shipping or free goods or some marketing dollars or something. And invariably, they'd cave because they're public. Private company, I'll just hold my breath. You don't want to buy my freezer this month and you buy it next month. I don't care. I know it's the end, end of quarter. Who? Why do I care? Like buy it next month. <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah the freedom to kind of run your own way run your own race right that's right jim i've, I've been really appreciative I, I think i could probably do like half a dozen episodes with you pulling apart each of your 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 entities and your your ventures it's um you know you had such a, a fascinating history um I, I will put you on the spot in, in the moment and maybe ask you if there is one core tip maybe that you want to share with your fellow sort of entrepreneurs out there. But before I do that, I mean, are you, um, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? And if so, where's the best place to do that? Of course.
1: Uh, see, I have this little test. I don't connect it with anybody who can't find me on Google. Another tip is I'm very active on LinkedIn, so find me on LinkedIn and say that you were listening to this uh, podcast. Because I I am slightly selective when people come and, and say and just try to connect. I don't say yes to everybody, but if you say you re, you heard me on this podcast, then I'll uh, reply for sure.
0: Yeah, cool. Uh,
1: that's great. Well, look, we'll
0: we'll put a, a link to your your various socials and, and websites and whatnot in the in the show notes, um, and and obviously people can reach out there um jim i've I've really appreciated having you on the show it's um I said I think I could just talk to you for forever about some of your your background and history and i 'd love to pull apart some of these other businesses that you 've run, but uh, obviously limited on time today, so thank you very much for coming on and and sharing your story is there Is there kind of one parting sort of
1: tip you'd like to share with everybody the The parting tip is the same as selling, and that is listening is more important than speaking and when you listen you will find what the buyer values and then sell what the buyer values don't sell what you think you want to sell and that's just sales 101 but selling a business is no different than selling a product it's the same thing
0: yeah brilliant tip Jim thanks so much for sharing your insights we really appreciate you coming on the show thanks Simon The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximise company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.